0: Hey friends, welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan, and here he's going to deal with the very end of Genesis chapter 27 specifically dealing with Rebecca's dealings with her sons, Jacob and Esau, and the ritual and sacrificial overtones of the text. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on this time of teaching, and thank you so much for listening.
1: We are at the point where Esau comes in, and after the blessing has been given already to Jacob, and we were... Last time I was talking about not sympathizing with Esau. And the text is written in such a way that we would naturally do so. You can imagine Esau coming in and you can imagine Esau coming in with his meal and his, his uh, deer or gazelle or whatever he had, humming and whistling and being all happy and excited and. This is finally going to come to pass. And then this shock happens. But remember that Esau does not react the way Isaac does. Isaac essentially submits to what God throws at him here. He knew he was in sin. And even though his repentance does not instantaneously make him into a saint, first thing he does is blame Jacob for his own sin. Yet there is a change that takes place in Isaac here. But there's no change that takes place in Esau. Both Esau and Isaac blame Jacob. But with Isaac, it's just because his sanctification is imperfect. With Esau, it becomes the settled attitude of heart that 20 years later he still has. And it's a murderous intent. So, while we can start in verse 34 of Genesis 27, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with a very great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, father. And he said, Your brother came with deceit and took away your blessing. And there is Isaac blaming Jacob. He doesn't say, This is all my fault. Which is what he should have said. And then Esau said, Is that why his name was called Jacob? He'll sneak, says here, Yaakov, he'll sneak. For he has now snuck against me twice. My firstborn right he took, and now he has taken away my blessings. And he said, Have you reserved no blessing for me? And Yitzchak answered, saying to Esau, Behold, I have made him a great one, a gibor to you. And all his brothers I have given him as servants. With grain and new wine I have invested him, and as to you, What then can I do my son?" Nesab said to his father, Have you only a single blessing, father? Bless me, me also, father. Nesab lifted up his voice and wept. We commented on the fact that Jacob doesn't really mean sneak. That he did not sneak against Esau the first time. He did not take the firstborn right. That was a perfectly legal transaction done under the sun in front of witnesses. And he didn't take away Esau's blessing because it never was Esau's with Star Wars. And then we come to Isaac's statement that there's nothing left for Esau. Is there only one blessing? Esau's pitiful pleading only points out the greatness of Isaac's sin. The yeah, Isaac has now put Esau into this horrible position. Esau would not be crying his eyes out, and we wouldn't be feeling sorry for him, or being tempted to if he'd been brought up to understand that he wasn't going to get the blessing, if he'd been given one portion and Jacob been given two portions, if he'd understood for 77 years what God had said. This is all Isaac's fault. Not only Isaac's fault for bringing him up to have wrong expectations, but also Isaac's fault for having given not a double portion to Jacob, but all of it, so that there's nothing left. So that's the greatness of Isaac's sin. It's highlighted here. And remember the contrast here is in Genesis 49. Jacob means replacement. And who is he replacement for? Isaac. He has to do what Isaac didn't do. He has to complete Isaac's life. Because Isaac starts well, but he messes up in the middle of his life. Now Jacob has to pick up in the middle of Isaac's life. And he's going to pick up where Isaac leaves off. Jacob has to kind of start off at the point where Isaac has ruined everything and build it back up. And he's going to inherit as a result some difficulties and traumas that he gets from Isaac that are now in the family life that has to be worked out. So, the blessing that Jacob gives in chapter 49 is the contrast here. And in that blessing, there's blessings for all the sons. Even the sons that are judged get something then there's specifics. Jacob is now the Gebir, the great one, in verse 37. He's the new Nimrod. We've talked about that. Jacob will encounter the true power of Babel in chapter 28. When we get there, we'll contrast the ladder to heaven with the power of Babel. But this is setting it all up. There was an appropriateness to calling Esau Nimrod because Nimrod was a hunter and he was one who defied God. And he went out and built a city. And he was like the defiant ones before the flood. That was appropriate for Esau. And it will continue to be appropriate for Esau. Esau will go out. Esau will develop a culture and a civilization called Edom. Many generations before Jacob does. The wicked culture always springs up first. The first city that was built was the city of Enoch. The first agriculturalists were in the Cain line. The first musicians were in the Caneite line. And Esau has an entire culture, a nation that's described with dukes and princes here in Genesis. And it's going to be several hundred years before Israel has anything like that. So he starts out first, and so he is in a way a Nimrod, but then there's the true Nimrod, or we might say the anti-Nimrod, the righteous equivalent, who is Jacob, who will encounter a ladder to heaven. It's built not from the earth up, but from the heaven down. So, that theme is one we want to keep in our minds. And then he says, all his brothers I've given in the servants. Well, were there other brothers besides Jacob and Esau? Well, if Isaac had concubines, there might have been. Maybe Rebecca had other sons and we just never know about it. Or maybe this is a formula. But repeated twice. Verse 29, be a great one to your brothers, and may your mother's sons, plural, bow down to you. Were there other sons? The Bible never mentions them, but the Bible doesn't have to. If they're not relevant to the Bible story. At the same time, I'm inclined to think there aren't. I don't think I could settle this. It's amazing how the commentators, you know, you get to, anybody who teaches the Bible knows this. You get to hard in text. You look the commentators and don't do it. Right? And the ones that you think, gosh, what is the explanation for this? You look it up and they, slip on right past it. Say, come on, guys, deal with this. Well, they don't. I didn't find any help anywhere except what I've just already said. Maybe this is the formula. The reason I say that is that Abraham has eight children, eight sons, Isaac, Ishmael, and then the sons of Keturah, and all those sons are named and they all show up later on in the Bible. And they show up in the book of Job. They show up in the book of Ezekiel. Jethro shows up as Midianite. All these people show up later on. The various sons and daughters of Esau. Sons, at least, of Esau are mentioned. Esau's sons, some of them show up in the book of Job. Other parts of the Bible. You'd think if there are any other sons here, they would have had to live in the general vicinity. They would have to be part of the factor of the culture. They're never mentioned. There don't seem to be any other people that they would fit. If there were other sons, where'd they go? What happened to them? They moved to China? Since nobody seems to appear on the stage later on that would fit this slot, I'm inclined to think that it's a formula. Not given your brothers. And that the word's plural there because it's a formula and in fact it just refers to the one brother. But can't know for sure. Maybe there were some other brothers or half-brothers around, some second-class wives, unendowed wives slave wine, talked about him. And then he says, oh, grain and new wine I have invested him. In. Well, there you are. Bread and wine symbolize the totality of the inheritance and the totality of the kingdom. And that's true throughout the Bible. Not only are bread and wine basically the plants made on the third day, fruit trees and grain plants. That is olives and grain plants and then by implication wine because it's also juicy to know it's not a tree. But later on in the Bible when it talks about tithing, as you'll tithe on your oil and your new wine and your grain, you think, well, does that mean I have to tithe on my broccoli? You know, you tithe on your sheep. Does that mean you tithe on your cattle too? Or just on those things? Well, the answer is, by telling you to tithe on the wine and the oil and the grain, that's a synecdoche for the entirety of your possession. Part for the whole. And those are the central things those central things to be tithed on, then you're supposed to learn from that to tithe on everything. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, you tithe on your dill and your basil and your cumin and your oregano and your marjoram, and that's what you should do. So it was right to tithe on everything, but not have left undone the weight of your matters of the law. So even though the tithing laws are always phrased in terms of these central plants, they apply to everything, The Israelite is said to have his vineyard and his field and his olive grove. That doesn't mean he doesn't have anything else. The entire kingdom of the individual Israelite is expressed by having those things. Because in Genesis 1, when God made the world, his world is pictured in terms of those things. Olive, wine, and bread. And those are sacramental things. You do sacraments in the church, you use bread and wine. And oil is used in the making of this bread. Whether it's butter or oil, it's oil. And for the sick, we anoint with oil. And we expect God to do something. So that, whether we call them sacraments or semi-sacraments, those are the three objects, in addition to water, that are used. Of course, water factors into both of these. You have to have water to make bread. And water is in the wine from juice of this grape. So, those things, water for baptism, oil for anointing, bread and wine for the Lord's Supper. They're from Genesis 1 on, from the third day forward, and here it is. So this doesn't mean just grain and new wine. It means everything. When you use that, it's a formula, part for the whole, the metonymy, and that's what it means here in verse 37. Now we come to 39 and 40 where Isaac gives some specific statements to Esau, and they're ambiguous. This is an ambiguous blessing. Verses 39 and 40. Then Yitzchak's father answered, saying to him, Behold, from the fat of the land must be your dwelling place, from the dew of the heavens above. By your sword you will live, you will serve your brother, and it will come to pass that when you brandish it, your sword, you will tear his yoke from your neck. Now all of these promises are double edged First of all, the word from. Behold, from the fat of the earth must be your dwelling place. That is the same phrase that's used in verse 28. When the blessing is given to Jacob, which is positive in its intention. So may God give you from the dew of the heavens, from the fat of the earth. That means get a good portion of it. blessings. But in Hebrew, this word from can also mean away from. Apart from. Depends on the context. And in this context, it's ambiguous. Now, if Esau cleaves to Jacob as his true Nimrod, worshiping at the true Babel, he will receive it as a blessing. He will receive the fat of the earth and the dew of the heavens. But it can also mean away from, in which case it will be a curse. You will be cut away from the fat of the land and you will be cut away from the dew of the heavens. Now that, as a matter of fact, is exactly what happened. Esau did not repent. He did not cleave to Jacob. He moved away into the land of Edom. And I've never been to the promised land. But apparently, those people lived in caves and rocks in a city called Petra, which is all made of rocks. And there wasn't any dew of the heaven out there. And there wasn't any fat of the land. And so the Edomites became raiders who were constantly sweeping into other people's territory to take food away from them because they really couldn't grow much food of their own where they lived. They became basically a scavenger race. So at any rate, Esau is told that this is where he's going to be if you take it one way. It's really going to be up to him. The same was true with Lot. If Lot had cleaved to Abraham, he would have been blessed because he separated from Abraham, he was cursed. But what does Esau want to do? Well, Esau doesn't want to save Jacob. He hates him. And yet, as a matter of fact, Jacob does provide some of these blessings for Esau later on. He does give him some of the fat of the ground and some of the dew of the heavens or the product of it later on. And that's where Jacob has to take up Isaac's sin and make it right. Jacob's life now takes up from Isaac's. Isaac repents and now Jacob has to start undoing everything that. Isaac did wrong. And one of them is going to be to see too it that Esau gets some blessing. Because Isaac didn't have any to give him. So, that's one ambiguity here. Will he receive a real blessing from the earth and the heavens? And again, that heaven and earth thing, that's everything. That's a symbol for everything. Well, it covers everything. It's not really a symbol. Heaven and earth was left in terms of blessings. Well, to see, I guess, but that's not relevant. So, is he going to get that blessing by staying with the covenant? By submitting to his brother? By letting Jacob be a great one and give bore to him? No, he ain't going to do that. And so, he's not going to get that as a blessing. He's going to be cut off from it. And the words will come true, but in the sense of away from the fat of the land. Then he says you will live by your sword. Well, that's true enough. Esau comes out with 400 men to kill Jacob later on. You don't come out with 400 men to say hello. And historically, the Edomites lived by raiding other nations and tribes. They keep showing up later on in the Bible as raiders, as reavers. Then it says you will serve your brother. Well, that's true too. The Edomites were subjected to the kingdom of David for a time, but only for a while, and they broke it off. It will come to pass that when you brandish your sword, you will tear his yoke from off your neck. Well, that happened too. They didn't stay submitted to David's empire very long after Solomon's sin and the shattering of the kingdom of Israel into two parts. Eden got free. But there's no blessing in that. To be yoked with the covenant would have been salvation. And you lift up your sword and break free from salvation, then... That leaves you with only judgment. This is not a positive statement here. I mean, Esau might have heard it and said, yeah, I'm going to get free of Him someday by my sword. But we have to look at it and say, you don't want to brandish your sword and get free from Jesus. And translate this, we will serve our older brother Jesus. But if we take up the sword and brandish it, we can break free from Him. Well, there's no salvation there. They feel good at the time but ultimately it's not going to be any good. Breaking free from Jacob and from the covenant would be regarded as positive only by someone who had no love for the covenant. And that's Esau. So Esau hears all this as a curse. He doesn't hear it as a blessing and it's ambiguous. And it's that way in the Hebrew. And this is not that unusual, folks. I mean, we have to understand, Jesus says himself as regards the parables, the parables are given to illuminate some and to confuse others. Parables are not simple stories. They're not simple illustrations of truth. Parables are complex mysteries that provoke you to think and say, wait a minute, and think again and say, hmm, and think again. And at every level of your thinking and all the stuff they tie into, you begin to pick up more and more. And Jesus says these are mysteries. If they were simple stories, why did the disciples get them? They didn't. Jesus had to explain them and he says, I'll explain some to you and the Spirit will lead you into understanding the rest. But as far as the wicked are concerned, these will only confuse them. They'll get them wrong. That's really true of the whole Bible. The whole Bible illuminates the righteous and confuses the wicked. That's why people like Jehovah's Witnesses and others who don't have the true faith, they study the Bible and they just get more and more confused and they come up with more and more warped and idiotic ideas. Because... If you're not submitted to God, if you're not in the church, then the Bible is not a source of understanding. It's a source of confusion. People hate God, and so they naturally pervert everything in the Word. So for this statement to have two edges is not a surprise at all. It's just one of many places in the Bible that it can be a savor of life or a savor of death, depending on who's doing the smelling. And here Esau hears it, and the opportunity... But there's also the darker side that if you get what you really want, Esau, it will be your damnation. The ambiguity here, the two double edged character of it, is really not anything unusual in the Bible as a whole. Well we got time. Maybe to finish out this chapter. The next section I have here on page fifty two is called Rebecca Rescues the Covenant yet again. Verse forty one to forty five. And Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, Let the days of the morning for my father draw near, and then I will kill Jacob, my brother. And Rivkai was told the words of Esau her elder son. And she sent and called for Yaakov her younger son, and said to him, Behold, Esau your brother is consoling himself about you, with killing you. So now, my son, listen to my voice, and arise. Be to Levon, my brother, and Haran. Stay with him for a few days until your brother's fury is turned away. Until his anger turns away from you and he forgets what you did to him. And I will sin, and I will have you taken from there. For should I be bereaved of you both in a single day? That's where the chapter break should be. The next statement is actually the lead-in to chapter 28. It wouldn't be... A Sunday school class, if I didn't tell you at least once a week that there's a deficient chapter break somewhere. But there you are. These guys did the best they could at the time. When Rebecca says, I love my life because of these Hittite women, then that leads right straight into the next statement where Isaac tells Jacob, don't take a wife from these women and go get another one from somewhere else. So really that verse 46 of chapter 27 should be with the next chapter. Okay, Rebecca rescues the covenant again. She hears somehow that Esau is going to do this. As Esau said in his heart, once daddy's dead, I'm going to kill Jacob. Well, daddy lives another 43 years. That's the way in which God protects Jacob. For 20 years, Jacob is out of the country. For 23 more years, Jacob is in the country, but Isaac is still around, and Esau has been kind of play Once Jacob gives his gifts to Esau and Esau accepts them, it's kind of hard for Esau to kill him after that. And he has 23 more years to get over it. by the time Isaac dies, Esau is not interested in killing Jacob anymore. So this is the way God protects him. This is rather horrible to think about. I mean, Isaac thinks he's about to die. And he's blind. Apparently, stone blind. Apparently, he couldn't see anything. Or he's couldn't see enough to tell between these two sons, who were visibly different. So it's not as if he couldn't see much. Apparently he couldn't see much of anything. Now he's got 43 more years to live in that condition. let God heal him. And oh Esau says, I will kill my brother. He doesn't just say, I'll kill Jacob. This text adds the word brother in here as it does throughout. Brother occurs. 24 times in his passage, and his father does. All these words are repeated for emphasis. Esau wants to kill his brother like Cain did. Esau says this in his heart, but obviously he didn't keep his intentions a secret. Rivka was told of the words of Esau, her elder son. So he must have gone off and to his buddies. He probably talked to his wives. Probably talked to his children. The children came around and told grandma, grandma Rebecca. It got around. Esau didn't make any big secret of the fact that he was going to get even and he was going to kill Jacob. Now, this is once again providential. Again, Rebecca overhears. That's where this passage started out. In fact, this is part of the chiastic loop of this passage. Remember, almost all these passages end where they begin thematically. God providentially causes Rebecca to be standing by the tent when... Isaac decides to give the blessing to Esau. Obviously, she wasn't hanging around the tent every day. She'd have been hanging around the tent for 50 years. So it just happens that she's by and hears this. And is given the information she needs to act on. We don't have to be told that God's providence is the background we know it. Just as in the book of Esther, although God's name is never mentioned, we know that God's providence is the major theme in the book. God is taking care of everything. Now here it happens again. Rebekah might not have ever heard about this. Esau really might have kept it in his heart. But she does hear about it. God sees to it that she hears about it so she can take steps. She can once again be the mother of the seed and protect the seed. So Rebekah tells Jacob to get a wife in her homeland. And remember, Rebekah is another Abraham. That's what Abraham did with Isaac. Rebecca is the female Abraham. She's the patriarchess in the second generation. And Abraham sent Isaac to Haran, and she does the same. Then, verse 44-45, to she says, Stay with a few days until your brother's fury is turned away, and I'll send for you. Well, a few days turn out to be 20 years. And after 20 years, Esau's hatred is not abated. He still hates him after 20 years. She says, I'll send for you after your brother's anger is turned away. The brother's anger never turns away, so she never sends for him. Apparently she dies before he comes back, because she doesn't reappear in the narrative. But then she says, and this is another curiosity here, verse 45, I will send and have you taken from there, or should I be bereaved of you both in a single day? Now what does that mean? Pardon? Something would happen to Esau if he killed Jacob. That's probably right. That's what most the commentators say. That's at least the large part of it. She expects God to kill Esau if he kills Jacob. God will avenge the covenant. God promises in the covenant, promises that he will avenge the covenant. Those who persecute you, I will persecute. I forget how that's phrased. Those who curse you, I will curse. I will bless those who bless you, and he who curses you, I will damn. And that's the way it's translated here in the cross translation. Well, so if Esau curses Jacob, Esau will be killed. Jacob will be killed. Now, there's something else here. You see here that Rebecca does care about Esau. This is not like Isaac. Isaac loved Esau and he intended to cheat Jacob out of everything. But this shows us something about Rebecca. She cares about them both. She cares more about Jacob. That's probably natural after all these years of her and him sharing the same outlook on life. But she cares about them both. It's hard to imagine a mother Hating your children, although that happens, alright. But here, she cares about them both. And, in terms of the context, this is going back to the more complicated deep structure stuff of the ritual and sacrificial overtones. I've got down here, she has combined the two of them in her ritual meal and their fates are linked. The death of one will be the death of the other. Now I think that's important prophetically because that's true throughout the entire Bible by making one meal out of Jacob and Esau, by making Jacob smell like Esau, putting Esau's clothes on Jacob, putting Esau's spices in Jacob's food, she has linked their fates together conceptually. And she's tied Esau to Jacob in such a way that Esau will be blessed when Jacob is blessed. That's really Rebecca taking care of Esau. We saw that last week. She not only works to try to get her husband to repent and to get God's blessing to Jacob. But by linking Esau into it in the ways that she does, she ties Esau to Jacob's blessing. And this you can follow down through history in the Bible. We won't do it. I'll just remind you that as you study the book of Judges, you'll see Esau in there from time to time. Edomite. As you get into the book of Job, you'll find one of Job's three mighty men was a Temanite. Somebody from Esau. And you'll find Amalekites right through the passage. And you'll find the book of Obadiah directed against the Edomites at a time in Israel's history. And you'll find in Psalm 137 when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the Edomites were there to cheer them on. And you come on down the New Testament, you'll find that Herod is the Edomite, the Idumean. Herod is the little horn of Daniel 7. Herod is the land beast, the false prophet, of the book of Revelation. All the way down to the end, Jacob and Esau are linked. Herod and high priest, Jacob and Esau, evil Jacob and evil Esau, Herod and high priest, are the two horns of the land beast in Revelation. And the end of Jewry, the destruction of Mystery Babylon, also ended Idumea and the Herodian Esau. There aren't any Herod, and there is no more Idumea after the destruction of Jerusalem. One history was the end of the other. Once the Jacob history had come to its full end, and the church had replaced it, the new Jacob, Jesus, had come along. Then the Herod, Edom, Esau history comes to an end too. So they're linked together. And she has pushed them together. And her statement then has this prophetic overtones. They'll both die in a single day. When one of them perishes, the other does.
0: If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.